This is an ABC podcast. On the morning of the 24th of February, air raid sirens rang out across Kyiv. Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, was at home asleep in a suburb south of the capital with his wife, his kids, their two dogs and their cat. He and his wife had gone to bed thinking that tomorrow would just be another day. A hard day, like a lot of days had been lately, but not one that would be cataclysmic. They didn't have their bags packed. They weren't expecting to be on the run or under siege. His phone rang. The capital was under attack. Zelensky rushed to the Ukrainian presidential compound. He was the first one there. This is Simon Schuster, a senior correspondent for Time magazine who's now writing a book about Zelensky. Quickly after that, his key security advisors and political advisors, his chief of staff, they arrived and began to improvise a command centre right there in his office. The presidential office is opulent, more like the Palace of Versailles than the White House. Everything is covered in extravagant tapestries and gold. The furniture is all very Louis XIV. The presidential residence across the road is not just extravagant, it is bizarre. It's called the House with Chimeras and it's covered in gargoyles. Stone mermaids, eagles and rhinos. It's even weirder inside. The ceilings are adorned with octopus tentacles and eagles hanging upside down from a rope. He and his aides always complain that they feel very out of place. In the chaos... As the sirens wailed and the sound of powerful explosions rang out across the city, Zelensky sat down at his desk in the opulent office he disliked so much. He pulled his phone out of his suit pocket, looked into the camera and hit record. Dear Ukrainians, this morning President Putin announced a special military operation in the Donbass. We are introducing martial law across the country. We need you to be calm. Stay at home if you can. Don't panic. We are strong. We are ready for everything. And we will win. Because we are Ukraine. Glory to Ukraine. Soon afterwards, he went down to the bunker. There were spare clothes waiting for him. Zelensky changed out of his suit and into a khaki t-shirt. He hasn't been seen in a suit since. I'm Matt Bevan, and this is Russia If You're Listening. Vladimir Putin's plan for a three-day takeover of Ukraine relied on a quick strike to take out Vladimir Zelensky, to kill him, to capture him, or to make him flee. Putin assumed that Zelensky was weak and that defences around the capital, Kyiv, were even weaker. Most of the world assumed that too. But on the very first day of the war, two events showed that Putin was wrong and led to the transformation of a man into a symbol of defiance against Russian tyranny. This episode, the story of those two events and the massive implications they've had for Ukraine, Zelensky and the rest of the world. Jewish comedian, star of rom-coms and sitcoms from an old steel town in central Ukraine, playing piano with his junk on the TV, grow up to be a heroic wartime leader. 
Well, Simon Schuster, a reporter at Time magazine, has spent the last few years trying to figure that out. It started in 2019 when Simon pitched a quirky little story. And I pitched the story to the editors about this this strange comedian who seemed to be pulling ahead in the elections uh, against a couple of much more experienced uh, politicians there in Ukraine. So I followed him around on the campaign trail for uh, a few weeks, uh, reporting the story there in Kyiv. Zelensky's campaign basically consisted of him continuing his comedy career and doing very few political events, interviews or debates. He's very fun, funny, easygoing, I guess you would expect. Very personable. He really listens when, when he's interacting with someone. He doesn't seem like he's in a hurry or, you know, OK, I have five minutes to talk to you and then we got to move on. He really takes in other people's views. And, and I think that's one of the reasons for the loyalty that he has among the people who have surrounded him over the years. Ukrainians loved him. They flocked to his campaign. Simon Schuster met him on the campaign trail at a sold-out gig at Kyiv's biggest concert hall. During the gig, he and his troupe performed a classic sketch. They play the traditional Jewish ditty Havanagila on the piano with their penises. Now, they're actually standing behind the piano, so I can't definitively say whether or not he was actually playing with his penis, and I'll get the ABC fact-check department to look into it. After the concert, Simon Schuster hung out with Zelensky's troupe as they partied backstage and mused over what cabinet positions they might score if Zelensky won. One comedian piped up, I think I'd make a pretty good defence minister, as he poured Simon a shot. Zelensky is a man who knows how to put on a show. It's in his bones. He started a comedy troupe with his mates when he was just 17 to stay off the streets and out of trouble. They became successful on Russian and Ukrainian variety shows. If it was Australia, they'd be a regular on Hey Hey It's Saturday or The Footy Show. He then got into full-length movies. Kind of Will Ferrell-type movies, if you know what I mean. Comedies about guys being dudes and chasing hot chicks. Will Ferrell probably is less ubiquitous than a, than a Zelensky. Zoya Sheftelevich is a Ukrainian-born Australian journo working for Politico, and she's watched Zelensky's career take off. He sort of crops up everywhere, really everywhere, particularly in that early sort of around about the mid-aughts to the teens. He really was on everything. He was on Dancing with the Stars. He was on hosting the like various shows, like the Russian equivalent of the Oscars or the Ukrainian equivalent of the Oscars and things like that. He was big, huge. He voiced the bear in the Ukrainian version of the movie Paddington. But the real life-changing event was in 2015, when he created a comedy show called Servant of the People, about a normal guy who becomes president of Ukraine. Essentially, the storyline is there's a teacher played by Vladimir Zelensky. One day he goes on this anti-corruption rant in, his, um, in what he thinks is a private conversation. A student in his class takes this rant and publishes it online on something like YouTube. That rant then goes viral, and there happens to be an election that happens very soon after this rant goes viral online, and people write in Zelensky's name on the ballot paper, and he's surprisingly, shockingly elected president, despite the fact he has zero political experience. Sounds familiar, right? Reality imitated art. 
The man who'd spent three seasons playing the lovable president on TV was elected president for real. There were perks to the job. He got to meet Tom Cruise in his opulent presidential office as the movie star scouted locations to film a Mission Impossible movie. But like many populist leaders find, elections are easy, governing is hard. It turns out people don't like politicians as much as they like comedians. His advisors told me that they often try to prevent him from looking at Facebook and other social media because he gets very upset at the criticisms and nasty remarks that people make. It can ruin his mood, it could put him in a funk. He spent a few years struggling to fulfil his promises, battling against a media industry and billionaires who hated him. But then the invasion happened. When Vladimir Putin announced on February 24th this year that Russia was taking the Ukrainian capital by force, Zelensky found himself trapped in his office with a team of Russian commandos outside trying to kidnap or kill him. There were, uh, around the government quarter, um, there was gunfire. and There were uh, attempts by essentially Russian reconnaissance groups. You could call them sleeper cells, um, who had taken up positions inside of Kiev. For the invasion, when the invasion started, there were multiple incidents of, of shootings, gunfire, shootouts around the city, in, including in and around the government quarter. Shots were ringing out around Zelensky's office. There was fear that these Russian agents were in the apartments next door. The presidential compound is packed so tightly among apartment buildings you could, if you wanted, chuck something from one of the windows right into the president's office. From what I, I've heard from senior Ukrainian officials, the intention there was to sow panic. So even by firing off a few rounds of shots at, say, the Ministry of Defense, you create the impression, even if it's just a few Russian agents in the city, you create the impression that that's it. They're already at the gates of the capital. They've already penetrated the capital. We need to run. We need to leave. Panic, chaos, air raid sirens and gunfire. There, there weren't nearly enough of these attackers to really pose a serious threat. But if an official, a minister, a part of the government is already on the verge of panicking and leaving, the attacks, the kind of sporadic attacks and gunfire that were taking place in Kiev at the time could have been enough and maybe the Russians were hoping it would be enough to push the Ukrainians over the edge and make them run away. Which I imagine would have been one of the reasons that there were a lot of people trying to encourage him to leave, to not be in Kiev. When did those calls first start to arrive to, for him? Starting at about 5, 5.15 in the morning on February 24th, Zelensky was having almost constant phone calls his, his team provided me with a list of world leaders he was talking to, and it's very long. And many of them, the Europeans, the Americans, were telling him, get out of Dodge, like I'm paraphrasing. Well, perhaps that does sound a bit like <laughs> Biden, but yeah. <laughs> <they were, laughs> and they were, they were suggesting that, you know, they would be happy to help him evacuate to a safer place if he needed it. Putin was trying to force Zelensky to leave. The Russian commando units in Kyiv were meant to scare him off. If he refused to flee, he would be dealt with by the forces sent to take control of the capital and install a new puppet government. Those forces were on their way. Zelensky had a short time to decide whether to run or risk being captured or killed. But he had received a tip-off about a key part of the Russian plan, 
and was determined to make sure it failed. This is the jaunty theme song for the VDV, the Russian Airborne Forces. The lyrics are, Hello from the sky, glory to the paratrooper, honour and praise. The VDV's mission was to take Hostomel International Airport on the northeastern edge of Kyiv. It's a cargo airport and a testing facility for the mighty Antonov Aircraft Company. Once they had taken the airport, it would become the base of operations for the attack on Kyiv. Dozens of planes would bring thousands of paratroopers and tons of equipment, which would be used to take the capital and deal with the president. On the surface, this was very bad news for Zelensky. The VDV paratroopers are the most celebrated part of the Russian armed forces. August 2nd every year is Paratrooper Day in Russia, and it's one of the scariest days of the year. Active and retired paratroopers dress in their signature berets and blue striped singlets. They get hammered at sunrise and then spend the day starting fights with anyone they see. They also love swimming in fountains. So many drown in fountains that cities tend to drain them before Paratrooper Day each year. They're supposed to be the elite fighting force of the Russian military. But in reality, the VDV may not be all it's cracked up to be. This is a VDV paratrooper who's now a prisoner of war, speaking to Ukrainian journalist Volodymyr Zolkin. He said, everyone thinks we're well trained, but in reality, our training is not very high. On the 24th of February this year, he boarded a helicopter for what he thought was a training exercise. On board, everything changed. A commander told them the plans changed. We're not flying to the training area. We're going to assault an airport in Kyiv. The paratrooper said they were shocked. People turned grey. The fleet of helicopters with hundreds of confused paratroopers on board flew low over a massive dam reservoir before turning and flying towards Hostomel Airport. Ukrainian forces began shooting at them with rockets and machine guns. Several helicopters were shot down as they approached the airport, but they reached with around 300 paratroopers ready to take control of the site. The paratrooper says that's when the confusion started. Where were they? What do they do next? Where do they go? Nobody knew. They could see smoke from artillery fire. They knew they weren't in Russia anymore. These guys were just the first wave. You can't take Kyiv with 300 confused men. Their mission was to take control of the airport and clear the runway so that 18 large military planes full of troops and gear could land, strike the capital and decapitate the government. But those 18 planes had only just taken off from a base 800 kilometres away, and the first wave would need to hold the airport until they arrived. This was absolutely vital to the success of the mission. The CIA had somehow caught wind of this whole plan and warned Zelensky more than a month beforehand. So while Zelensky wasn't expecting the situation to become so dangerous so fast, he was able to confidently issue a clear order, one of his first as a wartime president. It was clear to Zelensky that that was the gateway to the capital and it needed to be defended at all costs. One of his advisors described a scene to me where they received a pretty alarming report that the Russians had taken at least partial control of that airport 
and Zelensky gave orders to wipe them out with any available weapons. Do not let them take that airport under any circumstances. Ukrainian jets flew in and dropped bombs. Attack helicopters buzzed around the airport, firing at the Russians. The paratrooper says they haven't really been trained in how to deal with fighter jets and helicopters, so they dug holes in the ground. He said that didn't really work, but that's what the textbooks had told them to do when they were in trouble. The response from the Ukrainians was so ferocious that a decision was made to bring the planes full of backup troops and gear back to Russia. The guys who were waiting for that backup were stranded in their little holes. They were shot at. Some of the paratroopers were killed. They were told that backup was coming, but nobody came. Paratroopers are not meant to act alone. They're meant to arrive and hold a position behind enemy lines until support arrives. They couldn't hold the airfield, and the support didn't arrive. Eventually, they scattered into the nearby woods. Putin's dream of taking Kyiv in three days relied on this single operation, and it failed. There was no plan B, I completely agree. This is Putin biographer Philip Short. Failure to take Hostomel was absolutely appalling. And it was, yes, they sent too, too few men in, but then they didn't reinforce. This is former top Australian intelligence official Paul Dibb. They were picked off in a decisive way, and their division was badly mauled, such that I'm reading reports, some of which are out of Russia, that say that some of the occupants of that division have been refusing to do further battle. He says the defeat of the VDV at Hostomel Airport was an incredibly bad omen for Russia. So that was the first warning sign we got was, if the best of the best have just stuffed it, what's going to come next? As his troops turned the tide, Volodymyr Zelensky gave his answer to the wave of calls for him to flee. Simon Schuster has looked closely at this moment. Zelensky famously responded with this line, I need ammunition, not a ride. A more accurate and literal translation of what he said in, in Ukrainian was, I need weapons, not a taxi. So that was his, that was his response. And, and yeah, and, and I should say also that his own, uh, the presidential guard, his bodyguards, were also pleading with him to leave and preparing various evacuation um, scenarios that were available to him that he turned down as well. It's hard to say for sure, but I think most people would have run. In the early 1940s, the leaders of Czechoslovakia, Poland, Norway, the Netherlands, Belgium, Albania and Greece all lived in the UK, having fled from Hitler. In 2014, the President and Prime Minister of Ukraine both fled to Russia in the face of a revolution in the Maidan Square. Many Western countries, including Australia, ordered their diplomats and staff to leave their embassies in Kyiv weeks earlier. As the Russian invasion began, many top Ukrainian officials made the call to run. Many officials across the regions of Ukraine, across security services, even within the military, had fled. Um, a particular problem agency was the Security Service of Ukraine, uh, which is the main intelligence service of the country. There was a lot. Of, there were a lot of defections there that came as a great surprise disappointment to Zelensky uh, in, in those early hours and days. There were also other officials who just weren't answering their phones, for example, in, in the first couple of days. So that, that was a big concern. It was something that the president was very intent to stop. He wanted to make it clear to everyone in Ukraine, Russia and around the world that he wasn't going anywhere. 
and he expected other Ukrainians to stay and fight too. That night, the first night of the war, he walked outside with some of his top officials. He stood in front of the house with chimeras, an unmistakable and unique building that exists nowhere else but Kiev. And in front of the stone mermaids, eagles and rhinos, he pulled out his phone again, looked into the camera and spoke. Good evening, everyone. The head of the presidential office is here. The prime minister is here. My top advisor is here. And the president is here. We are all here, our soldiers are here, the citizens are here, and we are here. We will defend our independence. That's how it'll go. Glory to Ukraine. Volodymyr Zelensky's decision to stay triggered an immediate change in him. He left behind his signature look, black suit, white shirt, no tie, and replaced it with a khaki shirt or zip-up jacket. He was no longer a comedian. He was a president at war. That includes when he made an appearance at the Grammys, American music's Night of Nights. Glamorous celebrities in expensive gowns patted each other on the back, giving out awards for Album of the Year and Best New Song. And then, on a big screen, in his khaki t-shirt, is the president of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky. The speech was about opposites. He said the war in Ukraine was the opposite of music. The war. What's more opposite to music? Our musicians wear body armor. And instead of music, Russia was trying to silence Ukraine. We are fighting Russia, which brings horrible silence with its bombs, the dead silence. He called on the musicians gathered to fill the silence. Fill the silence with your music. Fill it today to tell our story. Tell the truth about the war on your social networks, on TV, support us in any way you can, any but not silence. And then peace will come. Zelensky's English improves the more he uses it. Since the Grammys, he's been using it more and more. The war of Russia is not only the war against Ukraine. Its meaning is much wider. Russia is trying to defeat the freedom of all people in Europe, of all the people in the world. He's trilingual. Russian first, Ukrainian second, English third. And the way he uses all three is really important. While Russian and Ukrainian share a root, they're about as similar as English is to Dutch. For the last 200 years, the Ukrainian language has at times been banned or suppressed in Ukraine. As recently as the 1980s, Ukrainian people were prevented from speaking Ukrainian at school. But then the Soviet Union collapsed. And children who were only allowed to speak Russian at school were suddenly told to speak Ukrainian, a language they had never heard. I was living in Ukraine in my village when the Soviet Union fell. And the difference was essentially my experience of it was almost overnight. Zoya Sheftelevich was in kindergarten in 1991 when Ukraine gained independence. Literally, I came to kindy on the first day of the school year and... Everything switched. So all of the teachers started speaking Ukrainian. Our curriculum switched to Ukrainian. Zoya didn't speak Ukrainian. She spoke Russian. So she had to learn a new language fast. We had this school pageant and I was playing Snowflake, which is um, one of the lead roles, if I do say so myself. (laughs) And and my mum and dad and my sister came to watch me and... My mum was shocked because the whole thing was in Ukrainian. I was speaking fluently in Ukrainian. Ukraine has been a nation of two languages ever since. 
Vladimir Zelensky grew up in a Russian-speaking city and is a native Russian speaker. But his TV show, Servant of the People, switches seamlessly between both languages. But in those classroom scenes where his students are talking to him, half those students are speaking in Russian, half of them are speaking in Ukrainian. This is important. It has been really remarkable watching those speeches. I think this is, uh, I mean, even just, I mean, honestly, talking about it now, some of it comes back to me and I get kind of chills. He is incredibly good at the messaging, that kind of wartime messaging. There'll be one part of his speech which is in Ukrainian, addressing Ukrainians, bolstering their spirits, giving this kind of unifying message, trying to get them to essentially see the light at the end of the tunnel. So he tries to pump up Ukrainians with the Ukrainian language, and then he'll switch to Russian to talk to Russians. Sometimes that is the mothers of the Russian soldiers who are invading Ukraine. And he will say things to them about, you know, ask yourself where your child is. Why is your child doing this? Is this how you raise your child to rape and pillage? Then, in Russian, he'll address Russian soldiers and tell them to go home. Then he'll switch to addressing foreign countries. It is quite astonishing to me the talent that goes into it. And by all accounts, a large part of those speeches are written personally by Zelensky. As the weeks rolled on, Zelensky changed dramatically. Look at Zelensky speaking in January 2022, and then look at him speaking in September 22. Ukrainian philosopher Mikhailo Minikov has seen a complete change in Zelensky. These are two different persons, personalities. Physically, linguistically, in terms of experience, in terms of this strength, energy-wise, these are two different figures. He is now a symbol of Ukraine. He's also a direct contrast to Vladimir Putin. The personality of Zelensky is surprisingly different to any other post-Soviet leaders. Zelensky is able to, to bring the nation to resist. Putin cannot bring Russian nation to any common decision. It's constantly new divisions within Russia and new with every step that he makes. While they're both Russian-speaking guys named Vladimir, Zelensky exploits the differences between them. Putin speaks Russian with the refined accent of Imperial St. Petersburg, but Zelensky has the rough accent of Kriviri, the steel town he grew up in. Zelensky has embraced social media. He posts videos from out in the street with his phone camera, whereas Putin addresses the world from a gold chair in his bunker. In April, Simon Schuster travelled back to Ukraine to spend time with President Zelensky and his team. He spent weeks in the presidential compound, seeing how the man he met backstage at a comedy gig was going as the leader of a country at war. Does he still have a sense of humour? Does he still make jokes? Yeah, I asked him about that. He he said that it's a means of survival at this point, a means of keeping morale high within his team, that he still makes jokes, they still find time to, to laugh. Um, I've heard many of his aides describe how they share memes and jokes on social media. You know, they might gather around a laptop where some uh, Ukrainian social media user has written a funny song and posted it on TikTok or some kind of you know joke about Putin or the Russians or whatever. Or some, some success of the Ukrainian military, they'll sit around and sort of, you know, high five each other and joke about that. But, you know, other people have told me that it's not by any means 
fun and games that uh, the mood is often very dark and Zelensky himself goes through periods of periods when he's definitely in no mood for jokes that's been the case you know from early on and maybe even longer spells since the beginning of the war Zelensky has barely left the presidential compound he occasionally steps outside to film himself in front of the house with chimeras to prove he's still there in Kyiv for six months, he rarely was able to see his wife and two children. They are in hiding. They now live in the presidential compound too. Zelensky really only leaves Kiev for one reason. Talking about day seven or eight of the invasion. And Zelensky decided, you know, that's it. I can't sit here anymore and look at this war through my phone screen and intelligence reports. I need to go see it. So he left the presidential compound kind of on a whim. There wasn't a lot of preparation. His security guards were doing everything possible to convince him not to go. It was super dangerous. As Zelensky himself told me, they were losing their minds. But he went with just a couple of his aides in an armored car, very low profile. They drove out to uh, the northwest of Kiev to a checkpoint and just kind of got out of the car and talked to the soldiers there and looked around. The president described seeing for the first time a crater that a Russian bomb had left in the road and just being stunned by the size of it and the amount of high explosives that it would take to create a hole in the, in the earth that big. They were within easy reach of a Russian sniper or artillery fire. I mean, you know, this, this is really the front line. And he said, I just needed to see it. I needed to be there. I needed to feel the emotions of the soldiers that, that he is commanding as commander in chief. It's become a habit. He goes and visits the front line to see it for himself. Mostly, Zelensky's job is not to be a military tactician. It's not even to be a political mastermind. He sees himself as a, as a symbol of the state. He needs to act the way that his people need a leader to act. And in a sense, there's, there's a performative dimension, but I don't mean that to be to diminish the, the power and importance of it, but it, it is responding to and feeling his audience. In this case, his audience is the entire nation of Ukraine. They're going through a collective trauma, a period of, of horrific existential danger. And this is a role that almost no other person in Ukraine could do as well as Volodymyr Zelensky. He is a performer. He is born for the stage. No one's prepared for that. There's no graduate school that teaches you how to be a wartime leader. It's a set of uh, expectations, it's a set of responsibilities, it's an understanding of, of the, the weight that you carry. You know, I'd contrast that with some other leaders, including Putin right now from the reports we're, we're hearing, who's much more intimately involved in battlefield decisions, right? Standing, you know, the, stereo, the, the kind of cliche of the general standing over a map and moving pieces around, right? Zelensky doesn't really do that. He's never done that. He's never shown a particular desire to tell the generals what to do. Um, he lets them do the fighting. I think he sees as his greatest priority still is keeping Ukraine very much front and center in the attention of the world, winning the information war, making sure that the, the hearts and minds of the people, not just the political leaders, but also the people in the West, but really around the world, in Africa and Latin America and Asia, are with Ukraine and not with Russia.
If you play a part for long enough, it starts to become more and more real. For eight and a half months, Zelensky has been a wartime president. He'll need to keep doing it for many more months, perhaps years. This is a man who began the war with a 30% approval rating. Today, the people of Ukraine love him. 91% of Ukrainians think he's doing a good job. More importantly, 98% say they think Ukraine will win the war. Internationally, $100 billion in aid has flowed Ukraine's way. What would those numbers look like if Zelensky had fled, as so many people urged him to do? Would Ukraine have been able to fight on if their commander-in-chief was giving orders from Washington or Warsaw? Would they have had so much support from other countries if a Russian puppet president was sitting in that opulent palatial office in Kyiv? Millions of people are involved in the war effort, and next week we'll take a look at what it's like for the people fighting on the front lines. But two events on the 24th of February 2022, Russia's defeat at the airport and Volodymyr Zelensky's decision to stay and fight changed Ukrainian history forever. The comedian who everyone assumed was out of his depth turned out to be the right man at the right time. Russia, if you're listening, is written by me, Matt Bevan. Series producers are Yasmin Parry and Will Lockenden. There are six other series, if you're listening, including Series 3, which is a really great prequel to this story about this war. It's all about Vladimir Putin and his attempts to take control of Ukraine and destabilise Europe. It's worth giving it a listen if you haven't heard it yet. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, please tell your friends. Word of mouth is the main way people find us. Thanks for listening.